church service, which is the expository, faithful preaching and teaching of the Word of God, which in this church is the final authority in all matters of life, faith, and practice. We're going to continue in the just for two more sessions in the book of Philippians, then I'm jumping back into Romans because I want to get us through that the rest of the year. But I felt this was really so apropos for 2024. So if you want to follow along on the overhead, we're going to be in chapter 2. I think we're going to read pretty much the first, probably the first four verses of chapter 2, and we're going to dig in. So follow along with me. If therefore there is any encouragement in Christ, if there's any consolation of love, if there's any fellowship of the Spirit, any affection and compassion, Make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Look at the next verse. Do nothing, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind. Let each of you regard one another as more important than himself. Do not merely look out for your own personal interest, but also for the interest of others. Well, that's the opposite of the way the world is today, is it not? So this is a continuation from what I preached last Sunday. So you can follow along. Here's some of the questions uh, I asked last week, but I want to bring these back to draw you into the text because I'm insignificant. I want you face-to-face with the text of Scripture. So here's some questions. Are the people, are people encouraged because of the relationship they have with you? Are they encouraged? Does your way of life, does it encourage others to want to know more about the Lord? How has he made your life different? Do, do I, do we have enough compassion to walk with people through their struggles? Remember, esteem others is more important than yourself, is what the text says. So last week I, I teased verses 1 and 2 apart, and we looked at the key words Paul used in the verse so we could better understand what he was trying to say to us. And we looked at that word, encouragement, comfort, fellowship, affection, compassion. That word encouragement, slide five. What does it mean? It means to come alongside someone, to bring comfort and counsel to them. So church, do we do that? Do we provide comfort to people when they're hurting and suffering? Do we koinonia, do we fellowship with people in this church or do we bolt out the door once the service is over? Do, do we have a tenderness to us and a genuine concern for others, especially in the church? It's quiet already, Dr. Carter. Do we not do this because we have a fear of being vulnerable and we really don't want people to get to know the real us of all of our imperfections? You know, as I thought deeply about this, 
But I shared this with you guys last week, slide six. Here's some sobering questions you can ask yourself, especially we're in the new year. Do I have behaviors that I practice that discourage people in my life? Hmm. Think about the way you interact with people. Do you have behaviors that you practice that discourage the people in your life? In fact, church, when they're with me or around me, do they have a loss of confidence in who the Lord is? Do they see you doubting? God doesn't hear me. He doesn't see me. Do, do they doubt God because they see you doubting God? Because things just aren't working out the way you want them to work? Or do I have a lack of tenderness and concern for others because, man, it just conflicts with my agenda? Hmm. These are the questions that came to my mind as I dug into those scriptures. Think about it. Hear me this morning. I know these are hard questions for us to digest and chew on. But I'm asking these questions because they're basically clear. You know, they're part of the text. Look what John MacArthur says. Let me share this once again with you. Slide 7. MacArthur says this. <clears throat> there is an implied negative side to all four of these positive admonitions. Namely, that failing to seek and preserve spiritual unity weakens Christ's church. Even more significantly, such failure to pursue unity is a sin. It is the ultimate act of ingratitude to God. It is to be willing and eager to receive all of the blessings that the Lord offers, but unwilling to offer Him anything in return. So here's some questions, slide 8. What would it be like, church... If we stepped out on faith and we yielded to the Lord, we allowed God's compassion to begin to flow through us. How would that change people's lives? What, what would be different in the relationships we have with others, especially in the body of Christ? Church, what, what if we stepped into the lives of people who are struggling with pain, broken homes, broken relationships, failure in their lives? What if we stepped out and became vulnerable and spent some time with people who are struggling with an addiction? How would that change and grow us? Because we don't have all the answers. Comfort, fellowship, affection, and compassion. How would that change us? If we yielded to the Lord and we allowed Him to work through us, how would that impact the lives of people around us? And we looked at verse 2, slide 9. Paul says, if you do those, if comfort, if consolation, if you do those things, he says, make my joy complete. How? Being of the same mind. Maintaining the same love. Being united in spirit. Being intent on one purpose. We define that word joy. The word there is karan in the Greek. I wanted to ask myself, okay, Paul, what did you mean when you used that word? Well, the idea in the Greek is gladness, this, this extreme happiness, this great delight. That's what that word karan means in the Greek. So what did Paul desire that would give him this extreme happiness and make his joy complete? What did Paul want to see happen based on the text and those questions? Well, Paul wanted to see any disunity 
that was infecting that Philippian church that day handled by being, seeing relationships actually restored to where they're supposed to be. See, he wanted grumbling. He wanted anger, rage, criticism, murmuring, clicks, and any other negative divisiveness. He wanted those behaviors and attitudes gone from the church because it harms the body of believers and it harms the reputation of the church. All right, Paul, so how did you want that fleshed out? He tells us in the text. Look at slide 10 and 11. Well, slide 10. He says, well, listen, the way this is fleshed out, we have to be of the same mind. We have to maintain the same love. We have to be united in the spirit and on, tent, on one purpose. Now, last week, we started to unpack that word. Well, what did he mean by mind? Well, the Greek word there, you can see, is the word phroneo. So what did he mean? Well, the idea of the, this, this mindset is something that you set your affection on. You see, that mindset speaks of a person's entire whole attitude. And it carries with the idea of a settled way of thinking or feeling about someone or something as it is reflected in the person's behavior. You can see a person's mindset if they're angry all the time, if they're freaking out all the time, if they're happy with everything all the time. And that can be infecting everybody else. Hear me this morning. You see, Paul wanted this Philippian church that he wrote this letter to to have their whole thinking and attitude lived out in their everyday life. Living out your faith in your everyday life. You see, he wanted their love for each other, their uniting together with one purpose. He wanted that to be lived out in their everyday relationships because that can be infectious too. And that can help other people. You see, when unbelievers people that have not surrendered their life to Christ, when they see the church, they're supposed to see something very different from the world. Do we understand that yet? When unbelievers see the church, they're supposed to be seeing something very different from the world. Church, your identity is tied to whatever you give your heart to, your mindset to. Your heart controls your behavior. So whatever controls your heart is going to shepherd your behavior. So here's the question this morning. What's been controlling your heart lately? Remember that phroneo, that mindset, it involves a whole person's will, affections, and conscience. Now being of the same mind as is used here has the idea more so of working together, having the same sacrificial service attitude that Jesus had. He modeled it for us. Think about it. The very God that knit you in your mother's womb 2,000 years ago was on the floor washing the disciples' feet. Think about that. The King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the great Ego Ami, the I Am, modeled it for us. So we looked at Paul's plea on this, the encouragement, the comfort, the fellowship, the affection and compassion. So this means that we are, as a body of believers, we're to work together in the face of opposition. Look at slide 11. I want you to think this through. Here, here's the others. Here's the contrast. What would be the opposite of having the mindset of Christ? That's bone chilling. What would be the opposite behavior of being of the same mind, maintaining the same love? Would it be, I want my way, this is me, and I want the world to wrap around me and bid do whatever I want it to do? Instead of loving you, I want you to love me. 
Instead of being united in spirit, it's going to be my way or the highway. And instead of one purpose, yeah, it's just going to be my purpose. So think about the opposite behaviors that we see lived out and fleshed out in the world. Consider for a moment what Paul shared with his young church in Rome. I want you to notice the contrasting statements here. And this will be slides 12 through 14. Look, look, at, look at these verses. For those who are living, controlled by, and joined with according to the flesh, the sarka, the flesh, they sent their minds, same Greek word you just learned, on what? Meaning what? They pursue and give attention to the worldly, fleshly urges, those things of the flesh. So the, if somebody's setting their mind on the world, they're going to be joined with the world. They're going to do what the world wants. You know, government will do it all for me. All that kind of nonsense. But those who are according to the spirit, the pneuma, they are controlled by the desires and the things of God, the Holy Spirit, the pneumatas. Why? For the mind, that pranama, is set on the mind pursuing and giving attention to the worldly fleshly urges, they're not controlled by God the Holy Spirit and what He desires. So the end is thanatos, death. But the mind, that pneuma, that's set on, controlled by the Spirit, and what God the Holy Spirit desires is zoe, life, and erene, peace. Why? Look at, look at verse 7. Because the mind that is set on the flesh with its carnal thoughts and purposes is ekthra, hostile towards God. It does not hupotasite, it does not subject or place itself under the namas, the law of God. It's not even able to do it. It has no power. That's where we get the word dynamite from, dunamata. It has no power in a moral sense to do so because they're dead in their sins. So that's what Paul's trying to get across to them. And those who are in the flesh, catering to the fleshly appetites and impulses, cannot be used God. If you are pursuing the things of the flesh, you can't please God. If everything's got to be the way you want it, and we live in a selfie world, we live in, I want my, I want my DoorDash here now, not 20 minutes from now. I want my Uber Eats now. I want it now, 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 now. If everything is about... You know, the way our world is set up, everything's about catering to, to making me pleased and happy and all that. And God's saying, no, I want you to pour out into other people. I want you to love other people in the midst of their brokenness and suffering. So you can see the contrasting here that Paul in Romans 8 was really trying to unpack for us. You see, church, Paul is giving us a description of a person whose way of life is pursuing the carnal, fleshly way of life. He's not talking, or I should say here, he is talking about a person whose complete mind is given over to pursuing and focusing on the worldly desires. This is a person who is spiritually dead in their sins and trespasses, Ephesians chapter 2. Think about it. Looking at the text, a person whose mind is set on the flesh is completely consumed with lust for sex, power, prestige, Money, homes, success, recognition. I'm the center of attention. So let's keep in mind that what a person keeps his mind on or she keeps her mind on continually 
That's what they think about all the time. And it determines who he is or who she is and what they're pursuing. Be around somebody long enough and you can see what, what their God is. You can see what they're pursuing. So Paul then, look at slide 16. He says, listen, I need you guys to be maintaining, and that's a participle in the, at the end of the word. It's an action word, continually in the Greek, continually maintaining the same love. That's the idea in the Greek. It's just not once in a while. There is a present active verb there. It's continually maintaining the same love. Okay, and that word maintaining means something to have or to hold. So the verbal form of the word speaks of this continuous action. So Paul is admonishing them to this ongoing love for each other in the church community. He's speaking about, by the way, he's not speaking about just a, you know, a, a friendly love. The word that he's using there is the word agape. It's a sacrificial love. I'm going to love you, and it's not based on how you treat me. I'm going to love you, and it doesn't matter. It's not based on what you do for me. It's an act of my will. I'm going to love you regardless, because that's my responsibility in Christ. So Paul is speaking about that agape love that Jesus revealed to us in his self-emptying, self-humbling service and a sacrificial death on that cross for his bride. He died for his bride. How dare we have affairs with the world when he died for us? And then he goes on. He says, listen, I need you guys to be united in spirit. And that's another pretty cool word here, you know, that these use. Sufukai. Um, this sufukai has the, well, first of all, it's where, if you look at slide 17, that's where we get our English word symphony from. Think about it. If you, if you ever use the word symphony, you guys know you're Greek. I'm proud of you. <laughs> See that? So what is a symphony? It's a large group of all these different musical instruments coming together to produce one incredibly beautiful sound together. You are the symphony to the world of broken, hurting people. That's what it's telling us to do. Be united in spirit. We are the symphony to the world. What comes out of your mouth should be nothing but brings glory and honor to Christ. Quiet again, Dr. Carter. I don't know. So he's speaking of this unity of purpose. It's coming together to work for the cause of the gospel. Let me share. Let's look at slide 18, 19. Tim Lane was one of my seminary professors. Let me share what he said. He says this. We are to maintain, not create these relationships. If you are a Christian, you automatically are in a relationship with other Christians. You are united to one another because you are united to Christ. Because of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, who is a person, you already share a deep bond that has been given to you by grace. That's powerful. Therefore, these relationships are gifts to be managed with great care. Oh, let me say that one again. These relationships are gifts to be managed with great care. When was the last time we thought of the relationships we have with each other in the body of Christ as a gift? Oh, I'm either being a good or bad steward of these gifts. Which are we? Slide 19. If I hinder my relationships with other believers in any way, I am devaluing these relationships. If I gossip 
or engage in ungodly conflict, I harm the gift God has given me. Just think about it. when you freak out and hurl out profanity and lose your uh, temper with somebody, think about how you devalue that gift that God gave you. What a different way to look at people that we don't like. Wow. But if I am willing to pursue, forgive, serve, I demonstrate care for these gifts. Boy, that really sinks in, doesn't it, church? And then he finishes with intent on one purpose. Literally, all thinking one thing. Think about that, church. Let's look at, slide, let's look at Philippians 2, 3. So he just moves on and unpacks stuff. 20 and 21. Do nothing from selfishness. Arethian is the Greek word. What does that mean, selfishness? Paul, what did you mean when you used that word? Arethian, selfishness. Pushing against people to have your own way. I know none of you all have ever been guilty of that. That's okay. Do nothing. The word there is ma, means absolutely nothing. Don't even consider it. Do nothing from selfishness or the empty conceit, the kenadoxion. What does that mean? Personal glory, selfish ambition, exaggerating one's worth or importance. So that's what he's saying. Don't push against people to have your own way. Don't be some type of kenadoxion, conceited person, with this selfish ambition and this personal glory. He says, do the opposite, but with humility. What does that word mean? Paul, Paul, what did you mean when you used that word humility? And how do I take what you meant and apply it to my life today, Paul? That's what we call exegesis, drawing out what he was really trying to get across to that church down there in, in Philippi. What was he trying to say? He's saying, stop pushing against each other to have your own way. Stop being selfish. Stop exaggerating your own worth or importance. Doesn't matter if they're wealthy and you're poor. They're no different than you. But with humility, meaning this low view of one's importance, recognizing your own insignificance in your mind, regard one another as more important than yourself. Notice how that is the very opposite of the way you and I have to live in this world, isn't it? It almost seems counterproductive. Well, why would we want to do that? Because Christ died on that cross to pay your sin debt in full. And the NLT, slide 21, puts it this way. Don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Be humble. Thinking of others as better than yourselves. So what did Paul mean with that word selfishness? Urethian. See, selfishness, church, speaks of a person who continually seeks personal advantage and gain over someone else without any regard to how it affects or hurts the other person. Think about selfishness. The question is, are, is there anywhere in my life where that shows up? Mm, now it's really quiet, Dr. Carter. I don't know. Think about selfish as a person who continually seeks personal advantage and gain over someone else without any regard to how it affects that other person. 
You see, in Paul's day, that word selfishness in his day, really, as when we look at the etymology and how that word really grew, it came to mean unbridled, selfish ambition, strife, quarreling, building yourself up, tearing other people down. And Paul is warning you and I about being that type of person who is striving to advance himself or herself by flattery or deceit, false accusations, or any other tactic that hurts another person. When we look at selfish ambition, really the center of pride is its fuel. Pride is really what is the gasoline for selfish ambition. Pride. Wayne Mack's definition of pride, I like it. Look at slide 22 through 24. Wayne Mack says this, Pride consists of attributing to ourselves and demanding for ourselves the honor, privileges, prerogative, rights, and power that are due to God alone. Pride is the very root and essence of sin because pride at its core is idolatry of self. A proud person puts himself in God's place where God is nothing more than a magic genie in a bottle and then when I want a blessing I you know thank you Lord thank you Lord now give me the blessing Paul Tripp says it this way I find it easy to be motivated by my personal rights and position I struggle when I am asked to give up my time my plans my schedule my possessions, and my control. Ooh, that hits home, doesn't it? I find it easy to be motivated by my personal rights and position. I struggle when I'm asked to give up my time for someone else, change my plans and my schedule, give up my possessions and my control for someone else. Ooh, here's some diagnostic questions, because I know how you love them. Slide 24. Do you hold others to a higher standard than you hold yourself? Now, think that through for a minute. These are questions from Tim Lane. Do you hold others to a higher standard than you do yourself? Do people, now here's a tough one, church. Do people regularly feel bruised in their relationship with you? Do they leave any type of relationship with feeling hurt, harmed in some way, devalued? Do you love people with limits that are driven by your own perceived needs or interests? I'll love you if you do this, this, that, and the other for me. Do we enter relationships just for personal pleasure and fun, but we want low personal cost and high self-defined returns? Ouch. Oh. Wow. Tough questions, aren't they? But that's the beauty of engaging the text of Scripture to your life. I'm going to read one more thing. I'm almost done. I read this probably, it's been seven or eight years ago. It's a, it's a poem from Beth Moore, and it's called Pride. This is what it says. And this is slide 25, I think, through 28. My name is Pride. I'm a cheater. You see, I cheat you of your God-given destiny because you demand your own way. Pride says, I cheat you of contentment because you deserve better than this. 
I cheat you of knowledge because you already know it all. I cheat you of healing because you are too full of you to forgive. I cheat you of holiness because you have refused to admit when you're wrong. I cheat you of vision because you'd rather look in the mirror than out the window. I cheat you of genuine friendship because no one's going to know the real you. 526. I cheat you of love because real romance demands sacrifice. And I cheat you of greatness in heaven because you refuse to wash another's feet on earth. I cheat you of glory because, I'm, because I convince you to seek your own. My name is Pride. I'm a cheater. You like me because you think I'm always looking out for you. Untrue. You see, I'm looking to make a fool out of you. Why? Well, God has so much for you, I admit, but don't worry. If you stick with me, you'll never know. Wow. Listen, I only have 16 more pages of notes. I'll have it out of here by five. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> Slide 27 and 28. Paul adds to self and that word conceit. Remember, empty conceit? So think about it. What does that word conceit mean? Paul, what did you mean by conceit? The kenodoxia. Kenos meaning empty. Doxia meaning glory. If you ever sang a doxology in the church, that word dox is one of the words that's used for glory. So kenos means an empty in. It's an empty glory. Really, the idea here, church, if we really want to flesh it out for you and I today, this empty conceit has the idea of having a highly exaggerated self-view of yourself. You see, you're always boasting and talking about self. You see, you're wise in your own eyes. So don't do anything through selfishness or empty conceit. Look at slide 28. Paul, writing to the church in Galatia, says this. For if anyone thinks he is something when he's nothing, he deceives. Renapata. He deceives himself. He's allowing himself to think something that isn't really true of himself. And that Greek word for deceive is actually also two Greek words, the friend apateo. Friend meaning from phronos, that, that, see, that mindset that we talked about. And the apateo meaning to lead in the wrong direction. So self-deceit is you're leading yourself, you're self-deceiving yourself, and you're ending up in the wrong direction because you keep deceiving yourself. You keep practicing the same thing, accepting expecting different results, and you never see it happening. So hear me this morning. Really, what does Paul want us to understand here? Self-glorification, church, is empty. It's self-deception. It's prideful. And hear me, your heart is traveling in the wrong direction, away from the Lord, because it's a false illusion. And Paul is warning you and I, to do nothing to try to obtain self-recognition to gain some position or power and prestige over someone else. That's not the way God operates. It's a pride problem. And as followers of Christ, all of us must constantly be on guard against this in our own lives because this type of behavior and mindset, it can destroy your home, your marriages, your relationships, and your friendships. It's a destroyer of everything and it sets itself up against the very God that gives you breath in your lungs. And then he closes it out with humility of mind. He says, but with humility of mind. 
That word but, that's where that sharp contrast is there. The opposite mindset of selfish ambition, pride, and empty conceit is humility. Humility. Look at that slide 29. Very, very powerful Greek word. Tape nof pran sune. Tapianas means lowly, really low. Fran, again, you see that word that he's using all the way through, that mindset, that seat of all your mental and emotional activity. That, that, that mindset of mental and emotional activity has to be assuming others is more important than yourself. Now, interesting with this word, back in Paul's day, it was commonly used of a slave, a doulos. And it, it, it carried the idea of a person who was of little value, a person who was really unfit, which is clearly the opposite of pride. See, pride always separates sinful man from God. doesn't matter who it is. Pride always sets sinful man away from God. So think with me this morning, and I'm just about done. To be a true follower of Christ, to be a true Christian, is to adopt this attitude, this mindset, voluntarily, and it is clearly the opposite mindset of the culture you live in. Consider that humility was a virtue that was to be adopted. Now, we can go all the way back about 3,000, 3,200 years ago. Back to a dad who screwed up a lot. His name was Solomon, and he's writing some of these verses I'm going to give you to a son that was maybe 18 or 19 years old. Son, look at Proverbs 11.2. Son, listen. When pride comes... Son, listen to me. Then comes dishonor. But the contrasting word. But with the humble is wisdom. So son, that word pride, zodan, it's a really interesting word, how they used to describe things. It means to boil. It actually comes from a word that means to boil. It, it, the, the idea here the, of a zodan is a person who's arrogant, a person who is really boiling over because they're so full of themselves. Look at me and how great I am. It's just boiling over. He says that kind of behavior, son, that brings dishonor. But humility, the other word. Dishonor meaning, the cologne meaning shame, loss of respect. But humble, as he used here, has the idea of a person who is submissive. Someone who's not trying to draw attention to himself or herself. As a result, that person gains wisdom. Look at slide 32. Son, he says, listen, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before stumbling. Here's another powerful warning from Solomon to his son. That word destruction is also very interesting. If you look at the, I put it up there for you. It means the shattering of a bone. The bone is shattered. So then your prideful, lofty dreams, your overestimation of yourself, thinking you're above or better than anyone else, will be shattered in half like a broken bone, son. You're going to have broken homes, broken families, broken relationships. You're going to go in the wrong direction. Haughty meaning arrogance, meaning eventually you cause yourself to stumble and fall. So how do we develop, and I'll finish here, with this mindset of humility. Let me finish up with slide 33, 34, and what you see what Wayne Mack has to say. 
This is really cool. Wayne Max says this. The path to true humility begins with a new birth. When you come to the end of yourself, your mouth is stopped. You have no act where you realize you can make yourself right with God and you completely repent of your sin and surrender your life to Jesus Christ. That's the new birth. The Bible makes it clear that no unsaved person can truly be humble. In fact, it should not surprise us at all when unsaved people act in a proud way. <clears throat> Pride is the nature of the unbeliever who does not know how to be anything else because they're dead in their sins, Ephesians 2.1. He goes on to say this, the beginning of true humility then, now look at this church, is the awareness of our total depravity that comes with the initial work of God the Holy Spirit in salvation. That is so important that you understand that. The beginning of true humility is this awareness of our total depravity. And that total depravity comes when that God the Holy Spirit comes in and wakes you up. So when you hear the gospel, you surrender your life to Christ. Has that happened for you? Only through the work of the Hagias Numa, the Holy Spirit, in our hearts are we able to see our desperate need for God. Have you come to the place in your life where you've seen your desperate need for God? Someday you're going to drop dead, and it's all done. And you're going to have to, 2 Corinthians 5.21, stand at that Bema seat, that judgment seat of God, and you're going to have to give an account. And if you're not washed in the blood of the Lamb, you burn in hell for all eternity. There's no other way in, church. Once we have cast ourselves upon God, truly repenting of our sin, placing our faith in Him alone for forgiveness, we have begun the process of decreasing pride in our lives and increasing humility. Amen? Slide 35. William Barclay says this, Humility comes from knowing ourselves just who we really are. Do you know who you really are? It comes from an honest appraisal of ourselves. Church, have you done that yet? It takes courage to look at ourselves. And it takes honesty to see ourselves as we really are. Because we don't like the ugliest we see in ourselves. You know, we have 20-20 vision when we can see the ugliness in someone else. Why is it that we have cataracts on our eyes when we can't see the ugliness in our own eyes? We really need the biblical visine treatment to get that out of us so we can see ourselves as the way we really are. You know? Humility begins to come when we honestly face ourselves and admit our self-centeredness. Self-centeredness weakens and limits relationships. Humility reaches its heights when we lose our lives in the cause of Christ and lose our lives in the welfare of others. Christian believers must forget self. I'm going to ask you to bow your heads this morning.